So I don't remember when I first heard about a kid's book about racism, but I do remember how I felt because at the time that this book was published, there was no other book like this. There was no other book written for kids talking directly about racism, let alone a book that was written by someone who looked like my kids. I still have that copy that I bought probably, I don't know, back in 2019. Wait, pre-pandemic? What? Yeah, I know, right? There was that time period, which was alternately, you know, three or 25 years ago. We've read it as a family, though, countless times. And my kids have read it themselves a ton since then. And since that original book purchase, we've added about 10 more A Kid's Book About books to our family library. And if I'm being truthful, I still want more. That's awesome. Because today... We have the true honor of talking with Jelani Memory, the founder of A Kids Co., who sits down with us to talk about something that's really close to each of our hearts, talking to our kids. How do we talk to them? What do we talk to them about? And what do kids really want to talk about? You all have asked us this. This conversation provides some of the answers because we dive into these questions and so many more, which is really a must listen for parents or really anyone who has an interest in how this next generation of kids are going to show up in the world as adults. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Would you please introduce yourself for our guests? Sure. My name is Jelani Memory. I am the founder and CEO of a company called A Kid's Company About. We make books, podcasts, even videos that tackle challenging, empowering, and important subjects for kids, really of all ages. So I am so excited to speak with you because I remember getting that first a kid's book about racism. And it was something that I really loved reading to my boys for the first time and reading with them, really, because it resonated with us, with them for being Black multiracial boys and with all of us, all three of us for being biracial or multiracial as well. So I would love to hear a little bit about your background and what led you to write that first A Kid's Book About. Yeah. I'll give a bit of a funny anecdote slash story that I uh, I don't know if I've ever really talked about. So you know how they have in high school, you know, you get voted like most likely to be successful, you know, most likely to whatever, believe it or not, I was voted most likely to be dad of the year which sounds bonkers in high school because I didn't have any kids, but I was an uncle. My closest in age sister got pregnant when she was 15. I was 14 and I was like a surrogate dad, you know? So just coming out of middle school, going into high school, beginning to practice fatherhood and through the many sort of subsequent sort of six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 nieces and nephews, got a lot of practice staying up at night, changing diapers, bottle feeding, you know, trips to the zoo, you name it. And having been a kid who was abandoned by his own dad, I was really curious about fatherhood and what it meant to be a dad and what it meant to raise children and what it meant to give kids things that I didn't have. So fast forward many years, I'm married to my wonderful wife and she's brought four wonderful stepkids in tow into my life. And I've got a little girl and we have a baby together. So six kids total. And, you know, raising kids in this moment now, they're so ready to talk about everything. And I wanted my kids to feel like they could talk with me about anything that I was going to be open and willing and honest. And so 
as a thing that now in some ways seems absurd, but it made so much sense to me at the time. I was like, I'll write a book for my kids. There's this physical artifact that says it's always okay to talk to me about this subject, this very sort of usually dark, dirty, ugly sort of subject called racism. I titled it A Kid's Book About Racism because the kid's book about racism sounded too pretentious. And I made one copy because I had no idea what I would do with anymore. Like, this is just a thing for my kids. And they had a really remarkable response, which was one, to open up all sorts of other new conversations that I'd never had with them and to ask new questions and to share new experiences. But two, to encourage me to think about making more books. It never occurred to me that I could take my little book and not only print more copies of that book, but also make other books on other really important subjects that we grownups like to shy away from talking about with our kids. And so thus, per my kid's inspiration, a kid's co was born. That's so cool. And I agree with you because I have kids, one in middle school-ish age, and they're like sponges. The kinds of things that they're open to discussing If you lead, when you talk about identity, like they are so observant, they are so loving. And I really appreciate that you've now created a whole line of books around that target. Like, can you talk about why you think it's important for this type of book, right? Because I think it's different. It's not like a, an adult book that kids have to step up to or talking down to them in baby format. Like, can you talk about for those who've not seen this book, sort of what your aim is with the significance of these series. Yeah. Well, in so many ways, the thing that I did for my kids was both a total accident and also this magically wonderful thing that encompassed all the things that I believed as a dad that my kids needed. So our books, all of them, all 70 plus of them are heavy in their representation of text and color and layout and design and contain almost no illustrations. They're almost all 64, 72 pages long. They're all titled A Kid's Book About Something or A Little Book About Something, which is our new board book series. And we tackle every subject from you know, really friendly, warm ones like creativity or adventure to anxiety, depression, suicide, school shootings. I mean, we get into it with kids. They're designed for kids from five to nine with that sort of core kid that we're going after is a seven-year-old. That's the kid we keep in our our heads as we're sort of going about making these books. And then 95% of the authors of these books have never written a book before have honestly never thought about writing a book before and collaborated with us to write each of these books in one single day. So we actually have this remarkable process called what we call our sort of workshop method, where we workshop books with authors and we write it in a day and that ends up becoming the manuscript for the book. In terms of the ingredients in the book, I wanted the book to do something that I think adults are really bad at, which is just to tell the truth. Just tell kids the truth, right? Wait, wait, wait. Let's repeat that. (laughs) Something that adults are really bad at. I love telling the truth. I mean, it is. Oh my gosh. That is incredible. Sorry to interrupt. I just had to. (laughs) (laughs) We lie to ourselves. We lie to each other. But the one group of people we never can get away with it with is kids. They see right through it. They know when they're getting a half truth or when they're getting brushed off or when they're getting talked down to. And we think we're doing them a favor. 
We think we're protecting them. We think we are sheltering them. We think we are offering them the protection of their innocence when really we're actually making them feel more alone, more helpless, or making them feel like we don't care to engage with their thoughts, experiences, or feelings about a subject. And and we're wholesale saying, you are not ready, kid, to get this special piece of information that I, only the adult can get to hold. And so our books just break through that. And they say things that I, when you watch an adult reading a book with the kid, sort of, you know, catches their breath to go, can you say this in a book that's for my six-year-old, you know, and you watch the kid and they're totally fine with it. They, they're okay. They didn't break. Right. And so that's the first ingredient. And then the second ingredient is to start the conversation and not finish the conversation. So many of these books in the kids' lives are trying to say all the things or not say anything at all, right? It's just a funny, fluffy story. And so we just go, let's, let's create the, enough of a springboard to create the shared language for kids to engage with that grown-up in their life on something that matters. And now the grown-up goes, okay, I think I have some of the words to say to tie this to some of my experiences and make sense of it and engage with my kid. And we, it acts as a bridge between the two. And I suppose the last ingredient, and this can't be understated, is that so there's real true representation of different individuals, stories, experiences, backgrounds that typically don't make it to the children's book or even the publishing world. And all of those ingredients end up amounting to this breath of fresh air for kids where they go, finally, somebody's taking me seriously. Finally, I'm getting the respect I deserve. Finally, I'm going to get some answers to these questions that I have that nobody will tell me the answers to. And then grownups realize it's not so scary to engage in these topics with kids. There are so many parts of your answer to that question that really resonate with me. And I actually have your target reader at home. I have a seven-year-old as my younger son. And we have, I think, about 10 of the kids about books at home, including a kid's book about the Tulsa race massacre, which I had out and my husband walked by and did a double take and was like, what is that doing here? And I'm like, oh, that makes you uncomfortable, too. So it's like, good, we're going to read it. But, you know, to your point, they love reading these books because they talk to them like these, you know, in a way that validates that they can understand stuff. And mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to go back to that, what you were talking about, the publishing industry, because I, you know, we've talked to other people on this podcast that have talked about, you know, how white and homogenous the publishing industry is, how, you know, there is a dominant narrative, which reflects sort of the dominant narrative of our country overall. And there isn't a lot of deviation from that. So I'm curious, you know, how was, since you've launched a kid's book about and the company, how has that been received in the publishing industry? And how do you feel that the publishing industry might be changing or not with regards to, you know, broadening that narrative and being more inclusive? Mm. You know, I genuinely thought when I started the company that the industry at large would go sort of like, who is this guy and what gives him the right to like make books? Like he didn't go through the right track. Like, you know, he doesn't get to be a part of our club. When in truth, it was the exact opposite. It was a big, warm hug. And I've now gotten to chat with you know, heads of children's publishing programs at, at big publishers, as well as CEOs of some of the largest publishers in the world. And they have absolutely nothing but good things to say about what we're doing, how much 
it's needed, how much they admire the innovation that we've brought to the bookmaking process and the speed to market and the being primarily direct to consumer and the representation. Like, and I'm sort of going, why don't you all do this? She can do this, you know? And it took me a little bit of time to realize like, maybe they can't. Maybe some of the mechanical bits and pieces they can, but when it comes to authentically finding and discovering talent, creating a system that allows for new kinds of voices to enter in and tell their stories and to be really intentional about staying mission-based when it comes to the diversity and representation that we want in our books and also the boldness to go, you know what? We might screw this up, but if we get it right, it's going to matter for the next generation of kids. That's a hard thing if you're 50 and you're white and you're male and you got your Harvard degree. Like, there's a very narrow scope of experience there that's not valueless. It just isn't represented in so many other places, right? And so I stopped thinking about uh, what gives me the right. And I started thinking about going, maybe I'm the only one who can do something like this that what's really required if new books are going to get made and new authors are going to get to go make those books is that new people need to sit in not the lower rung seats, but in the most tippy top seats. We're talking boardroom, we're talking CEO, we're talking COO, because so much of that leadership is intuition and experience and the way something makes you feel and what you want to see for the future and, and you wanting to see yourself represented in the content that you make. And it's no surprise to me that that publishing is heavily white, often heavily male, or at least from a patriarchal point of view, right? And so we just decided, you know, we were going to do things a little differently. We were going to make a little trouble, a little chaos. And the industry has received us, I think, in a really warm and friendly way. And so now I hope that we become like a vanguard in showing that it actually, there's a new gate into the industry And it turns out nobody's standing in front of it. You can walk through and start your own thing and make your own thing. And lo and behold, there's still books, right? (laughs) You're publishing, right? It's like, it's not that complicated. And there are so many more storytellers to come tell their stories. Like that's the thing I'm most proud of is discovering these really wonderful stories and going to tell them and having a process and a mechanism and operation that supports those storytellers having a platform. I'm so happy to hear that you got a warm welcome. And it really reminds me of this idea of when you connect with your truth, I mean, you stumbled into it and you listen to your children living in the same integrity that you have, that kids know that they can have these hard conversations. You listen to your kids say, you can do more of these. And it's a different feeling compared to what you just said about the white 50-year-old male who are afraid of losing what they already have. Mm. It's like protection versus creation and being in alignment. And I'm really glad that they were still able to give you a warm welcome. If I could piggyback off that, I had a really wonderful call with a woman who runs an organization around sort of uh, decolonizing workplaces and the attitudes and the processes that we bring to our work. And we were just you know jiving. And one of the things that we were really hitting on that I think our company encompasses in a really remarkable way is like, usually when the diversity play happens at a company, it is one dimensional. It is, we need more Brown folks in the office, or we should make more Brown people books, or let's have more women in leadership, put a woman on the board, right? 
as if that like sort of solves all of the systemic problems when in reality, like there's so many different angles and approaches and systems that either need to be ditched or changed or adjusted or moved around. And, you know, so for our company, we have a diverse group of creators that's across our podcasts, our books, and our video talent. We have a diverse team. We have diverse leadership. We have a diverse group of investors and we have a diverse board. Okay. That's multi-dimensional sort of representation because the problem is, is you go, let's hire a bunch of black interns and all the same people are in leadership manage. I just like, I'm sharing that to go like, these things won't change until the efforts become sort of wholehearted and, and thorough throughout an organization. And to your point, it'll mean the giving up of power from some of those folks who, who have a lot to lose, but maybe have so much more to gain. Because I think we all gain when, when organizations are truly representative of our world, of our communities, of our country, of an industry. I mean, the storytelling industry itself, right? It's true. Doesn't it make you wonder, can we change things or is it really we've got to scrap and build? And maybe not even just scrapping the things we have, but encouraging more creators to come and start new things that, that can eventually shift the entire landscape by doing their own thing, their own truth. And I think we've talked about this even in film. Like, it's not just about hiring that one diverse executive. It's like the entire pipeline. And, you know, for all that we, Misasha, you and I talk about this importance of doing and the action, I feel like the doing and the being have to be, like, you have to be curious. You have to truly in your heart, you, it's like everything about how you show up has to be in alignment, not just a random check mark. You know, I did that thing that I was supposed to do. I did the action. There's got to be a word that links it with, so it's, it is more sort of holistic change, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Along those lines of changing and people doing things, I would be really curious to hear, because we talk about, obviously our, our thing is about getting uncomfortable. None of these conversations that you mentioned, you know, about racism or about divorce, like that your books cover are like easy right? Some of them are really uncomfortable topics, but what tips do you have for people in this audience, probably adults, right? To, who are just like venture, just starting to get uncomfortable, this area of discomfort for the first time. I really like the way you asked that. You didn't ask me, how do I talk to my kids about racism? I think the real question is, is how do you get uncomfortable, right? Because that's really what it's about. And I think like any muscle, the more you use it, the better you get at it. The more you practice it, sort of, you know, the more you'll be able to perform. Once you start to wade into those waters, like start somewhere. So my advice every time with anybody is to go, don't wait till you've read all the books, you know, you've, you've dove deep on like how to be an anti-racist and you listen to these podcasts, like don't wait till you've got your sort of like, you know, graduate degree, almost PhD in, you know, how to get uncomfortable, just start somewhere. And what you find is you go, okay, you got a little taste of it. It was uncomfortable. You didn't like it that much, but next time you try it, it's not as hard. And then it's not as hard the next time and the next time. And then like, when you're doing that with the kid, you go, oh, they're not uncomfortable at all. What's up with that? You know, why am I uncomfortable? And you start to unpack some of your baggage and some of the things that are going on and your experiences. I'm not a fan of like, you have to get everything right from the first time. You'll say stupid stuff to your kid that's wrong and bad and like could be damaging. 
but you can also correct that later if you just start and you keep going, which is the other piece of this. A lot of folks one and done these conversations, sex, drugs, you know, death, like racism. They want to like solve it in that one conversation. And the reality is all you're doing is opening a door and you need to let your kid walk through that. And now that you're on a journey together to go dive into these things. And I still get uncomfortable talking to my kids about things. This is like literally my job is to tell these stories and to make these books. I still get uncomfortable because we have all these hangups in society and because I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing and because I'm unsure of what's in my kid's head. But I also have enough practice to go, you know, this is probably going to be okay. And then I'll give one more piece of advice. And this is the best piece of advice is even if you never initiate, take advantage of the opportunity when your kid initiates because they will. And if you squash it every time, you're going to find yourself with a 16-year-old that you're dying to talk to who's like, I don't want to talk to you. Like, (laughs) I've got TikTok and YouTube and my friends. I don't like have to talk to you, do I? (laughs) Right. So that curiosity of that six and seven-year-old that goes, why is their skin so dark? Or, you know, why is their face look like that? Or, Someone said this word at school today. What does that mean? You just, you grab onto that and honestly go as far as you can go with that. Cause you never know if they're ever going to ask again, if they're ever going to care to look to you for that piece of wisdom. And sometimes the best thing you can say, and I'll wrap up this whole advice bit is to say, I don't know. Let's find out together. Kids love when adults don't know things. They love it. They go, oh my gosh, you adult, you don't know stuff. This is awesome. I'm smart, you know, so that they can feel like they're, they're on the same page with you. They're at the same level as you, all those things. And I think those things are achievable by anyone with any topic because you got to start somewhere, right? We only record or we only like do the audio for this, but I'm nodding my head like so hard (laughs) to everything you said because we say yes. Yeah, it's exactly what we say on the podcast and in our work. And, you know, I think about all the times I messed up with my kids, which is pretty much like every day when we have conversations. But to your point, like they love finding out that they've sort of stumped me or that there's like something else that we can go learn together because the learning together part is also what they love. And so I love all the different ways that you talked about this because I think it's so important and that sometimes it really does come from the kids. And a lot of times it will come from your kids in ways you're not expecting too, but to use those moments when they come because they may not come. Well, and ultimately it's about having Mm -hmm. a good relationship with the next generation, with your children. I mean, about all of these topics, because if you can only talk to them about this certain segment of it, they're going to pick up on that. And then you will only have like a relationship defined by those limits as opposed to modeling the type of relationship, which hopefully a lot of parents want, which is that your parents, like that you have an ongoing relationship with them where they will continue to have conversations all through their life with you so that you can like show each other that you matter, yeah, that you care, that you're willing to go there, you know? Absolutely. I wish folks get a peek inside my home because it, it's not always rosy. And even as I do this work for a living, I still find myself stumped and unsure and not knowing what to say or do or how to navigate something. But one thing remains true is like, I got to keep a connection with my kids. I got to keep that pipeline of 
talk going back and forth so that when something comes up, they feel free in that car drive back from school to say, Hey, can I tell you about something? Because once that valve gets shut off, in a lot of ways, it never opens back up. And I think all of us know other friends who are adults who have a strained relationship with their mother, their father, their grandparents, or other sort of adult figures in their life because they never could talk. And once that goes away, it doesn't just magically improve when you become an adult. You just sort of, you bear and grin it and you show up to Thanksgiving and you can't wait to leave, right? <laughs> and it like, it doesn't have to be that way. And I say that as a child of divorce, having my dad abandon me with a remarkably strained relationship with my mother, trying to build and do something different with my own kids and realizing that happens now. It actually, it doesn't happen when they're 25. I've already decided what's going to happen when they're 25 by the decisions I make now and the way that I treat them and engage with them. That's really powerful. I 100% agree. And I also think that car rides are some of our best conversations with me and my kids. Cause also I'm looking in one direction, they sort of feel free to tell me whatever they want to the back of my head. And we've had like, and you know, they're seven and nine, but we're talking about intersectionality and we're talking about, you know, non-binary and use of pronouns and they can handle these conversations. They want to know, they want to have these conversations. So I love that you said that about that too, because I think those are the moments, right? Those are the moments that we have a choice and we can say, you know, we can just ignore it or we can engage. So I want to ask, because I have my favorites from a kid's book about, and this might be a totally unfair question, in which case you can, you don't have to answer, but do you have favorites in your kid's book about series? Like if someone were to say like, give me your top five books that I need to have right now. Here's the beauty is we have so many that for every family or grown up kid situation, grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, teacher, coach, I think it's a different group of books. And we built the company in that way to support, to go find your five or six or seven or 10. I have a soft spot for a few books though. One of them is a book that we created from start to finish in a week, believe it or not. That's a kid's book about anti-Asian hate. And it was, you know, we had made a kid's book about racism. The summer of George Floyd happened and, and it was like, okay, we need to carry that conversation further. Like my book doesn't say enough, but we need to dive into systemic racism. So we did a kid's book about systemic racism and the hundredth anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre was coming up and going, okay, let's, why doesn't every elementary kid's school know this story, right? We learn about George Washington, like chopping down a cherry tree for some reason, but we don't learn this, right? So we made that and made that available. And then, you know, the string of awful shootings in Atlanta happened. It was a wake up moment for me to go, I don't know if I've really ever understood the Asian American community and this tension between the model minority myth and often the tension between, you know, the Asian community and the, and the black community and the injustice and the racism that they suffer. But it was also in this moment, it was like, it was undeniable. And so I was like, we have an opportunity to make something and make it for free and make it available next week. So let's go. Found a really wonderful author who was really reluctant to be the author. But I said, he's a good friend of mine. You're already embodying this sense of grief and outrage and also desire for things to change. And I go, I just want you to communicate that. 
and we made this really wonderful book, turned it around and gave it away as a free ebook, and then subsequently made a print book uh, for it. And that's one that I got a privilege to workshop and design. And it's a really lovely, really simple book that I actually think maybe more than any of the other books embodies that original spirit that mine brought, which is just sort of like, this needs to exist. This isn't about money. This isn't about branding. This is about, this is a moment where not just the Asian American community, but the entire US community needs this story when it comes to talking to this moment and the kids in our lives. So there's that one. And then, you know, a fond spot for all the early ones. The very first book we workshopped was a kid's book about belonging. So I'd written my book. I decided to start a company. I found 12 authors, which some friends, acquaintances, like a mix of folks, you know, and a kid's book about belonging was the first one where we go, can we write a book in a day? I don't know. Let's see. And we've been off to the races since then. And it's by a really good friend of mine, Kevin Carroll. Those are probably some of my favorites, but it's all sentimentality for me because I remember making them as well. That's so cool. And as you were talking and some of these titles make me think in terms of action steps, I'm like, oh, I don't know if it's like second grade ish level is the target, right? Like, I'm like, does my kids public school have in their school library, in those classrooms. I'm like, I can do that as an end of year gift to some of the teachers in the local schools. And so you got me thinking there. I'd like that. I have a personal question that I'm curious about because one of the things you just said was you're doing this work and you've put out so much and yet you also want to make sure that you have what I call energy to be present for your kids. Cause ultimately that's what all of this work was inspired by and is for. And that's something that Misasha and I do as well. Like, especially when we talk a lot about racism, it's like some of these topics are very heavy and keeping up with politics and this sort of stuff can be very heavy. And so we've been talking about how do we build things successfully while keeping energy to be present for our families, for ourselves? Like, how do you navigate what you define as success while also have like all of the things going on? How do you keep boundaries? Or I'm not exactly sure what the word is. Like, navigate that space, that tension of wanting, you're doing this to improve the world. There's so much work to be done. And obviously when it's your own business, you get to decide how big, how fast and all that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. So I was just curious how that plays in to the company and your personal life. Yeah. Well, my dad gave me a wonderful gift. It wasn't on purpose, but he gave me a really wonderful gift in his example. He showed me what my life would look like if I put creativity and genius and career over my kids, over my wife, over my family. He showed me where that path leads and it's not pretty. Give you the condensed version. I had this really touching, wonderful, amazing moment with my dad, which sounds absurd because there were no moments like that growing up. I mean, I saw him a dozen times in all up to 20 years old, but I went to his apartment. He met my daughter for the first time. It was like five at that point. He'd never met her. And he showed me, he gave me a window into the grief that he felt from having missed out on all of our kids' lives. He had four kids and he missed most of it. Never saw me play basketball, never saw me play the guitar, met my kid once, you know what I mean? Like, and he was broken. I mean, just a broken man. And I remember just over his right shoulder was his Grammy. He's a famous musician. He was, you know, like studied with Wynton Marcellus was like an accomplished guy, you know, some considered him like a musical genius, but he didn't, he wasn't happy with his life. It didn't work out for him. You know, he got everything he wanted and it didn't work out. So this is a great cautionary tale 
It's like, I got to see one of my futures and go, okay, that one doesn't work. Let's try a different one. And it's just a nice check to just go, you know, I think it's just work and my family is important. I need to be able to clock out and just be with them. And I need to show up to stuff. That's big for my kids. Just showing up, right? Hey, can you bring me my lunch? I forgot my lunch at school. You know, that sort of thing, right? Hey, I have a band thing. Do you want to come? Yeah. And let them watch me cancel stuff, right? Go, oh, you know, I got asked to go like talk in London for this thing. But like, I'm going to come because you're the tree in the background at the play. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because that's all they remember. That is all they remember, right? Is that you gave them your time. You know who's not going to remember it all? It's like the CEO that I met with to like do coffee and try and close a deal. Like this is, doesn't matter. And he can also do that next week or the week after. But for, you know, my kids, that doesn't, you know, it's irreplaceable. And so I keep these little things in my head as a little guy. I don't always get this right, but you know, my kids know, like I don't work on weekends. You know, I, I try and clock out by five. I'll skip just about anything. It's why I'm an entrepreneur. So I can like not be anywhere anytime I want to. And then here's the nugget for anybody who's like, oh, but I'm ambitious and I want to be like the person in charge and like be successful and like raise all the money or do whatever I want to do. Right. Is to go, you know what? You can still do all that. Like that stuff can get done. And in fact, it might get done better when you constrain the amount of time that you have. Like any day that's like wide open and I don't have any meetings, I almost always like fritter away, like watching YouTube and like, you know, <laughs> reading blogs. Like I never get anything done on those days. But when I have like a bunch of tight meetings, I'm like, okay, I've got an hour. I got to knock this out. You know, you can get stuff done and you can be accomplished. But there are no happy people who sort of, you know, achieve their dreams and have everybody in their life unhappy with them for doing so because they've been such a terrible person. Like that doesn't work out for anybody. And so I try and remind myself of that when I'm like, oh, but I could be like important if I go do this thing. It's like, yeah, but I, I got to come home at some point and like make mac and cheese and like my kids give me the stink eye, you know, like, um, so that's how I think about it. Thank you for sharing. And as I've been talking to Sarah, my kids play a lot of sports and thinking about all showing up at all the sports things and balancing all of that. But listening to you talk about it just now, like, you know, my kid's probably going to be the tree in the background at some point. And being there is why I changed my career in some way. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and if I can add on to that, like, this is a perfect example because it happened today. One of our kids forgot their cell phone in my car and dropped him off at school. And so... She had no way to contact. So she's like on the computer at school, logs into her Instagram, hits up my wife. My wife screenshots that, sends it to me. And I go, oh, she's fine. What does she need her phone at school for? You know? And of course, like, I know why she wants her phone, right? For other reasons. So it's like, there are healthy boundaries when it comes to that with your own kids to go, nope, I'm at work right now and I'm doing that. And it's okay if I say no, or I can't do that right now, or I'm not available, but what you can't do is go, I'm supposed to be with you, but I'm going to like be answering Slack messages while we're like supposed to be hanging out. Like that's a big, big no-no, but it also gets to be the reverse to go, hey, you got to respect my space and my autonomy here to go. If I do this work now, it unlocks my time with you later. So you have to allow me to do it. Because I also know like being a parent during the pandemic, hard. We're all, you know, we have six kids. So everybody's on top of each other. 
you know, it's overwhelming. And I know as my wife reminds me very constantly, it's, it's different for moms. It is fundamentally different for moms. The, the expectation, the responsibilities, I watch my kids wear my wife down. They know when I say no, it just means no, but they will wear her the hell down because they know she'll break. Right. (laughs) And so I have to remind myself to go like, you know, for her, she runs a nonprofit. She's pursuing this new business venture, but she also has a kind of pressure on her that I have to remind myself is not there for me for right or wrong reasons. Even when I try and muster it, it's not the same. And so I don't want to make it like, you know, oh, everybody can go achieve their dreams and be at home and be the perfect parent. Like I also know that's really tough and everybody's home situation is different and that there could be other factors that make it really tough. But if you're going to choose, you know, choose your family, that feels like the right thing. I think one of the most helpful like frameworks that someone shared with me once about that dichotomy that some families have or one parent sort of doesn't wear that same burden was just that this idea that often, and this is a very broad brush statement, raising kids requires physical labor, like running the house and like doing the laundry and like making dinner, all of those physical things. But we often forget about the emotional labor and the calendaring, like the scheduling of all of the things. And I think if we can acknowledge all of the things that go into raising kids and split all of them, those last two are often so invisible. And we often talk about just the physical ones. And so I sometimes make a point of bringing my computer into the family space when I'm doing all of the, I'm rescheduling your dentist appointment, which means that it triggers that I have to make the other phone. So they know all of the things that are going into raising them, that I'm not trying to just ignore them and hide and I'm doing work. No, I'm like helping with the family stuff too. Yeah. I feel like I want to like, you've got me like thinking about my kids and they're just expectations, just like things magically happen. It's like, no, when you put clothes in that hamper, somebody grabs that and carries that to another room and like does stuff and then puts it back in your room clean. Like that's a person does that. (laughs) (laughs) That's been our big learning of the pandemic. I think that my kids are like, oh, stuff just doesn't magically happen. Like, you know, I've gone to school and stuff just changes around the house. It's like, no, there's always a person involved in that. Uh So I want to ask you because you know, we started off by talking about the expansion of how it went from a kid's book about racism to all these books. And now you've got a podcast, there's an app, there's classes, there's so much more that's now involved in the kids, you know, company, really. And so where do you go next? Like, and how do you think about like, natural expansion or any goals or dreams around that? I'll answer it in an imaginative way first, and then I'll answer it practically. Imagine a future I don't know how far off that is, 10, 15, 20 years, who knows, where a company like the Walt Disney Company is diverse throughout its whole ranks, right? Along every metric that you can imagine, like in excess of multiple percentage points. And its focus is not so much on entertainment, but it's on empowerment. It's trying to encourage, enliven, empower, prepare you know, heal, create resilience for that next generation of kids. What does that organization look like? And what kind of stories would that organization tell? And what avenues could that organization leverage? Whether that's video, song, the written word, think about all the age demographics that it could hit, right? That's really my ambition. I so desperately want to build that. And I'm gonna get to the practical part in a second, but I think we've done a disservice to our kids. 
they either get, you know, like we just watched uh, Sing 2 with our toddler who loves it. And it's a fun, remarkable movie. Man, there's like a 30 million thousand movies like that that are just fun and entertaining. And they've got a nice message like be yourself or something like that. Right. Or it's, it's hard education. It's like do algebra, learn about the French revolution. Right. (laughs) And then we have the TikTok and the YouTubes and the Instagrams where kids actually want to be. And we, I think all intuitively understand all the downsides when those things are over-consumed. What I find missing are things that are just as engaging as a TikTok or a Disney, but offer that real meat of empowerment and education and something that touches their real life. And that like, I don't see my kid's real life. Like my son, he's like, I'm learning about Paris and the Eiffel Tower. And it's like, cool. But also like, you know, you've been bullied and there are these things that have happened around you, right? Like family members have died from COVID. Like who's talking to you about those things? Don't those things actually have a bigger impact on your life and your psyche and your emotions? And I'm not saying that we can't, we don't need to spend time on either entertainment or education when it comes to kids. Those things are necessary and they have their place, but it feels like a third leg to the stool is dramatically missing. And so very practically for us, it's through creating more books. I love books. I think books are this magical vehicle into another world, but to go after more age groups, right? What's that middle reader? What's that YA approach, right? What's that very sort of stark, honest thing that you could hand to a 16-year-old that says like, okay, we're not pulling any punches now, right? Because you're about to be an adult that respects where they're at. And then we're really interested in television. I think television has a way of moving culture that very few mediums do, right? We all remember reading Rainbow. We all remember the Mr. Rogers show. Sesame Street has just been on an amazing run for the last 50 years. Like, where's that next version of those things? But for me, I keep thinking those were always for the younger kids. What about your kid who's in school with his smartphone? I like, where's that version of that show for him? Right. And sorry, like, you know, Logan Paul is not it, right? Like it's just not. And then I believe that podcasts are going to be ubiquitous when it comes to kids five years from now, that every kid will have their favorite shows and their subscriptions and all those sorts of things. Cause audio is this magic place where you can tell a story, but it unlocks something for kids where they have to use their imagination. And so we're really interested in continuing to grow out our slate of shows there and explore what's possible. And then maybe not quite last, but least, but last but not least is parenting stuff. You want to talk about a space that's not really that diverse at all. Oof. Parenting stuff right? Like we're still reading what to expect when you're expecting 25 years later. I mean, my goodness. So we're really interested in going, shouldn't there be some other voices here? Because the families that I know don't really look like the people who are making this content, right? Where's the representation here in a really meaningful way that has a beautiful brand wrapped around it and is actually working at scale. So those are some of the bits and pieces that we're, we're looking to expand into. I think that's great. All right. So to wrap this up then, since inevitably people want to learn more about you and the company, where can people find out more about you and follow you on your shows and everything else? Uh, Yeah. I mean, company-wise, go to akidsco.com. 
you'll find all of our podcasts and books and, and everything else. Download our app. And then me personally, just at Jelani Memory on just about any social platform. And you can also email me, Jelani at kidsco.com, and I will respond to you. Turns out I read my emails. I'm not that important yet to stop reading my email. So you can feel free to contact me too. If you have a book pitch or like a podcast pitch, or if you just want to say, hey, what you're doing in the world is good and important. And yeah, we welcome it all. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. This was wonderful. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.